You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Did you ever go to the market? Yeah, every once in a while I've got to pick up a few things. Um, yeah, unfortunately I'm not like a Yaoman farmer who's sustaining life, you know, uh, no. by just planning my – I have to go to the supermarket, yeah. One of my favorite parts of going to the market as, as a kid was watching, of course, what was going on with Bat Boy. Yeah. The, you could really get the, the real news, you know, right there in the supermarket. It's like the mainstream media completely ignored the plight and story of Bat Boy. He had such a huge story arc. There was even a Broadway musical – and I passed it every single, like, as a kid. And I always wanted to know, like, what's going on and why won't my mother let me buy the World Weekly World News? Is that what it was called? Uh, yeah. I don't remember the exact name. Is that it? Is it... Yeah. Okay, oh, wow. So... We, have another, we have one of our guests chatting in. I know. I know. It's, I can appreciate that because even as a young kid, I was a little skeptical of the credibility of that news source. It looked really shady. The pictures were terrible. And it was in black and white. And, you know, at least the National Enquirer had colored pictures of whoever, you know, celebrity that they were, you know, going to be talking about was who was sleeping with who and whatnot. So I think that, you know, I don't know how long those types of papers have been around, but I wonder if that's kind of the uh, if we if we wanted to start a Wikipedia page, that's kind of the birth of of fake news. Or is it something different? I don't know. I think we need to discuss this because this is a hot issue, especially Within so for social studies teachers, I think English teachers, they're trying to figure out you know credibility and media sources and how we determine um, you know what information is useful and and where we get quality information. Is that a, something you've been talking about with your students at all yet? Yeah, we actually just had a, a conversation today about um, well PizzaGate, uh, which is a terrible thing that just happened, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk more about later. Um, but it's a, a fake story that ended up in, in in kind of a really scary scary circumstance. Uh, yeah, it's really frightening. Do we have anyone who can help us today? Hopefully we can find someone who can answer some questions about this, maybe some media experts, some teachers. Um, and so let's go ahead and bring in our guest today. We'd like to welcome uh, first of the podcast, Renee Hobbs. Welcome back. This is friend of the program. Hi, guys. How is Rhode Island these days? I'm actually in Des Moines, Iowa, and right across the street, uh, Mr. Trump is doing a a thank you rally. It's really disgusting. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> I'm in the heartland of America today in a hotel room in Des Moines, Iowa, where Donald Trump is celebrating his victory. Maybe they should have you open up and do some media literacy <laughs> instruction to, to all of his audience to make sure, you know, they are informed. Um, we would also like to welcome in Annie Jansen. Annie, welcome, and you are a friend of the program by way of Nate Bowling, and you teach with Nate, right? I do, yeah. We co-plan together, so we te both teach AP government and politics, and yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to solve all the world's problems, so. And you knew about Bat Boy. Yes, I followed Bat Boy as well, so very close to my heart. That's why I had to jump in. I had to say something, so. 
So a lot of teachers are trying to make sense of this recent election. One of the things that really popped up in the news is the idea that social media is having a big influence on where people get their news. I think there's no doubt that that's part of it. A lot of information is curated through there, but also that a lot mm-hmm. of fake news is now being distributed and circulated more often. And I'm guessing this is a phenomenon that's reaching new heights. I don't know to what degree it existed previously. Renee, can you kind of fill us in on on kind of the landscape right now, how things are changing and what we should be thinking about? Yeah, well, first, let's talk about the history of fake news, because there's nothing new about it. And I do think that history and government teachers should, like, take a look really uh, intensely at our great Pennsylvania mm, hero, Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, the guy with the spectacles? Ben Franklin was such a skillful purveyor of fake news. It was unbelievable. And in fact, we even know that John Adams was active in constructing fake news. But there's a really great story of Ben Franklin constructing an entire issue of a newspaper with a fake story about an Indian massacre that was completely made up out of his head, but designed to create feelings of anger and resentment about Native people. So fake news has been around for a very, very long time. Mark Twain was also a purveyor of fake news, as was our uh, creator of crime fiction, Edgar Allan Poe. So some distinguished literary figures have been involved in fake news. We shouldn't think of it as a new phenomenon or one that is exclusively related to social media. I know that in the French Revolution, fake news is all over the place and often had disastrous consequences. Of course, Jean-Paul Marat printed some terrible things about the queen, and then the fishwoman went to go pretty much try to massacre her, um, which is very frightening. So fake news can kill, because a couple of guards did have their heads chopped off and then were put on pikes. I got really dark there, and I apologize for that. Michael gets really excited when he talks about the French Revolution. It's like a common theme of the show. <laughs> Even when it's heads on pikes. <laughs> heads on Now... As a New Englander, you know, I've heard of this deflate gate thing. And I say that, you know, anything about deflate gate, is that fake news? Because I don't particularly like any coverage of deflate gate. Well, this is a great question. You know, you Tom Brady loyalists, uh, you just can't see reality for what it really is. <laughs> oh, no. So just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's fake. Aha! Really great point. And that's certainly something that we would want. Uh, as social studies and history teachers and government teachers, a second point. So if point one is fake news is not new, second point would be we humans have this cognitive bias where we tend to accept fake news when it matches our existing political ideology. There's a really great study by Joseph Kahn and his colleague report on a study of more than 2015 to 25-year-olds. This is a nationally representative sample. They conducted an experiment. First, they found out whether people identified as more liberal or more conservative. Then he gave people a three-item question of political knowledge to distinguish between people with a lot of political knowledge and people with very little. Then he showed them randomly posts that were either emotionally intense, informationally intense, or flat-out crazy wrong. And he found that both liberal and conservative young people were likely to rate as accurate the crazy wrong stuff when it matched or agreed with their existing political ideology. So we can't just think that the tendency to believe false information is just a liberal thing or a conservative thing. Everybody is susceptible 
to inaccurately judge information when it matches your existing point of view. So confirmation bias is is a problem and echo chambers are a problem. It seems like, you know, we hear information we want to hear, but not even just we hear what we want to hear. We seek out information maybe that we want to hear. And then once we get there, as Joseph Kahn's study showed, the things that confirm our biases, what we already want to believe, we those are the things that really resonate with us. So how do we address that, Renee? Well, you guys, uh, you, you social studies and government teachers do this already when you use what uh, Richard Paul used to call strong sense critical thinking. That is, when you ask questions that interrogate the assumptions of the stuff we agree with, right? <laughs> That's not easy to do. And sometimes we don't give that the time in the classroom that it needs. But when we take time to interrogate the beliefs and attitudes that we agree with, like for instance, why we think the New York Times is a credible source. Why could we actually interrogate that in a high school government class? Well, damn right, we better, because that's the only way to build those critical thinking skills to protect us against confirmation bias. I used to really like to do the agree-disagree discussions in my classroom, and you know, I'd have agree on one side of the room, disagree on the other side of the room, and we do some kind of issue, whether it was affirmative action, some related issue that's highly, you know, highly um, often intense, I guess is the word I would use, that, that provokes intense emotions and beliefs oftentimes. And then I would predictably have students talk for a couple minutes, and then I would have them switch to the one that they didn't choose and argue from that other point of view as practice to really suspend their own judgment and at least consider, hold those other views in their mind, suspend the judgment to hold those other views for a time period. And students are pretty good at it if you just put them in that position. Like, I, I think that once they get there, they're kind of willing to at least think about what could someone else see from this perspective, even if I'm not going to change my view. Yeah, that's a great, great uh, activity. One thing that I like to do is I like to help my students to become more metacognitive about what they pay attention to, right? So essentially, what do you, what what are you paying attention to? What are you noticing? And then that also invites us to think about, well, what are we ignoring? right? What are we not paying attention to? So thinking about how we allocate our attention and starting to notice when we pay more close attention, we, we tend to pay more close attention to the stuff that we agree with. We tend to dismiss and not pay very much attention to the stuff we disagree with. So thinking more about how, how we choose to be strategic in our attention, that seems like a, can be, an, can be a way forward. Annie, you're, um, I mean, you teach government, correct? I do, yeah. Well, how are you handling like the, the confirmation bias or the fake news in, in your classroom? Where we launched this uh, media unit this week, and we have a, a section in our media unit specifically devoted to fake news. We're spending a lot of time talking about it because even though it's fake news is as old as time, we have seen a lot of recent examples in the news. And also there's a study out of Stanford. I'm sure you guys are aware of this. Stanford Graduate School of Education did surveys over a long period of time of students and whether or not they could identify the difference between real and fake news. And they found that depressingly, most students in middle school and high school and even in college cannot tell the difference between real and fake news. So when that research came out, in, in addition to this, the political climate that has created fake news, in the last year or so, those two things in combination, we decided that we need to spend some time on it. So yeah, we're actually 
we're working on finishing it now and launching it um, next week. What types of activities are you going to pursue in trying to help your students understand fake news and biased news yeah. which, and all, all of the issues associated with it? Yeah, that's such a good question. So one of the things that we're going to focus on is actually putting real examples in front of them and that there's no substitute for them being able to see a legitimate news source next to fake news and actually asking them to do the, the work of identifying the differences, right? It's as simple as saying, can you see the difference between a fake news headline, which is in all caps and has three exclamation points versus a, a news headline from a reputable source that that is perhaps not in all caps and doesn't have three exclamation points. What's the difference even between the news headlines, right? Um, do they appear to be sensational? What is sensationalism, right? And defining that term and making sure that they understand what it means. Just having a basis of knowledge about what the differences are, right? Between real and fake news. We are also talking about kind of sending students on a fact-finding mission to, to discover, like go on the internet, Go on your on social media and see if you can find fake news because it's there. It may not be the first thing that comes up on your newsfeed, but go and seek it out because you will be able to find it. There's some really cool resources about like a selective attention on YouTube and how we choose our news uh, over time, how it's refined to this, like you were saying, like the echo chamber and having them evaluate their own social media presence and what their news looks like because they have narrowed it down. They have catered it to their to their interests and seeing where the these things kind of show up in their own life. So one thing that's in the assignment media literacy curriculum that I created for the state of Maryland and the Discovery Channel is called Credible or Incredible. And the activity is to choose 10 artifacts and to mm -hmm. create a, a long vertical poster, right? And at the top is the most credible source on topic whatever it is. And at the bottom is most incredible source. That's awesome. And then you have to rank order from the most credible to the most incredible. And teachers mm -hmm. who used it in Maryland said to us, they gave us such great feedback on it. They said, you know what? Actually, we never ask students to find incredible information. We never ask students to find bad information. So yeah. they don't know how to evaluate. They're so used to teachers handing them the good <laughs> right? Then they don't actually know how to distinguish what the bad yeah. is. And so what, what teachers found was when they saw the kid come in with their long vertical poster and they had really credible sources down there at the bottom, then mm -hmm. there was a place of inquiry. Like, why did you mm -hmm. put it down there? And what clues made you think it was yeah. not credible? And then likewise, they also would see kids put really crappy information way up at the top. So yeah. visually, it was a simple way to kind of identify which kids are really confused about and, making distinction, right? And yeah. of course, it makes great posters and they're fun because the <laughs> incredible that kids find is really hilarious. And that's, we also have to recognize, part of the reason why fake news is so popular is because it's hilarious. And mm -hmm. we can acknowledge the playful, fun value of it while at the same time we talk about the danger of it. So- we have our fake news, like our fake, like legit fake news. We have mm -hmm. our sat, you know, satirical news, like our onion, which is really funny and it plays around with, you know, uh, what's going on. And then we just have our biased news. Like we're talking the Huffington Post, which is extremely sensational. 
I feel like every time I go to it, my world is ending because that's what the headlines tell me. But you also have your, uh, you know, your Drudge Report that kind of fit into that category. Am I hitting the, like the range there? <laughs> well, and and Michael, the 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 other thing we have now too is that we have new curate means of curation, right? That we only we're getting these certain types of news disproportionately based on these social media algorithms that exist too. So I think that's like another complex thing is we used to kind of easily just go seek out the news and now it kind of comes to us. Whatever happened to Walter Cronkite? I know. Oh, you're so young to be worried about that. Huh? So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting if you, if you think it's important to divide those genre labels up there, that actually could be helpful because certainly those categories that you described are great. But in the media literacy community, we say all media messages are selective and incomplete. Mm. All, all media messages have a bias. So the trick is to spot that bias, right? And that, mm-hmm. does that mean they're all equal in quality? No, but it does mean they all have a point of view. So from my point of view, one thing that's really important to teach high school kids is about the concept of public relations, right? That for every one journalist in the United States, there are five full-time public relations professionals. That's why Disneyland gets in the news so much, right? Mm-hmm. That's why some topics are so commonly represented. That's why technology news is as important as it is. So well, and that's why, yeah, that's why minority groups and are underrepresented in news media. And that's why poor people and members of unions are underrepresented in the news media. They're not sexy news. They don't have public relations professionals yep. working on their behalf because they can't afford it. And so once yeah. you start to teach kids, how can you spot a public relations influence in the New York Times or in Time Magazine or in your daily newspaper? Once you start looking for it, it's really, it's everywhere. And there's nothing unethical about public relations. We don't want to present that public relations is evil or bad or demon. We just want to say not all voices are equal. And people can pay to get their point of view uh, across. Witness uh, Monsanto and uh, the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there are more uh, opioid deaths, deaths, deaths than car accidents, but prescription drugs are everywhere and legal because big pharma has a lot of public relations experts persuading us that more drugs is better. And uh, not to go down another uh, tangent, or as some of my friends call them, dangents, because I'm easily get off task. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the same way where um, all car, uh, you know, pedestrians, when pedestrians are hit by cars, they're, the way they're, the news stories are always framed as an accident, and there's no one else to blame. You know, the ways the roads are constructed, the cars, it's nothing else. Um, I've, I kind of, first thing, note to self, Michael, um, we clearly need a publicist. Um, so... We will, we will immediately be ra- raising funds because no longer will we be left out of media stories. <laughs> well, I feel like we are trying to like highlight, you know, teachers because we are a voice that's not there. And we are doing our best to highlight, you know, excellent teachers and, and, and uh, the profession in general. And maybe this speaks to why teachers need to speak out more. Um, coming back to our, our topic all the way back around. Um, you know, we do study this a little bit and I think about, you know, we, we don't use the term anymore and I would like to bring it back, um, yellow journalism as a term that we, you know, to make historical connections about the way media has long portrayed events. I don't know what, why, what happened to the term yellow journalism? Why don't we use that anymore? 
I think yellow journalism was a term that did relate essentially to uh, the color of the newsprint. It's sort of, you're right, it's, um, it, it, it suggests there's something like white journalism. So I, I don't like mm. to think about it. I think even at the time it was a little bit misleading. Uh, you know, back in that day, you know, there, the, the concept of objectivity really hadn't emerged in its full flowering mm. as it would later on. I'm not sure how useful that, that concept is for, I guess it's cool, cool to build a bridge between the past and the present, but it was probably misleading even then. Well, really what I was trying to do is see if we had a publicist, I think they would position, tell us to position our podcast as a muckraking, um, you know, <laughs> outfit of freedom fighting teacher. I got nothing. That's why I'm not a publicist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's Annie and Renee, I mean, you guys bring a lot of wisdom, I think, to this topic. Um, and I think me, the media, um, unit in AP government is an excellent time uh, for students to investigate this. Um, so for both of you, what do you think are some takeaways we could give to teachers who are trying to approach how to understand, you know, become, help their students become more media literate, understand the media landscape today? I think educators are really aware of like issues of equity. When I see media literacy, especially critical media literacy as an issue of equity. So if we are giving students like the opportunity and the access to the information and empowering them to to use it and to use their knowledge then we are we're doing right by them um and there's some students have higher barriers to accessing that information so i think recognizing it as an issue of equity is important because that motivates teachers because we recognize inequity we see it and we understand that framework of thinking about like students lives so i think that will that helps articulate the problem for teachers and also thinking about it across content areas, because I know that in social studies, it's a natural, the natural place to talk about media literacy, but it has to be tackled across content areas. And I think that there's so many benefits for teaching English language arts. Like that's, there are huge opportunities there for um, media literacy. Um, I also think schools need to focus on this like critical media literacy, because if we're talking about we want students to be able to think critically about what they're reading and viewing and um, consuming. It has to be a higher priority in our schools. Like I just a cursory look at school missions. They don't mention media literacy. Right. Sometimes mention critical thinking. And I think you've got to couch media literacy in with critical thinking, but it sort of stands alone in the world we live in. I think that it has to, it kind of holds its own place. So you have to recognize that as being a priority. So, and so it'll take some trailblazing people in buildings to be like, to bring it to their, their coworkers, you know? Uh, but I think that is really important that we do it like at a building level, recognize the importance of uh, media literacy. So. So I think that goes Annie to the point a little bit that educational institutions, our curriculum are very slow to adapt and the media and landscape has really changed in the last 15 years. Absolutely. Um, some things are similar, but some things have changed a lot. And so, you know, we had Howard Reingold on episode 30, and he, he's written a great article about social media literacies, that we have to help students focus on where their attention is um, as yeah. a, primar a primary way to start thinking about it. And so we need to update ourselves and update how students, uh, or update our curriculum about in how we can teach students 
to seek out information and to connect with the world in ways that are meaningful. And we have to give them opportunities to have successes and not just talk about what's bad about media. Cause that's, I think the, that doesn't really help. And also just no. let them, let them get exposed to it. Right. I mean, get exposure yeah. to good and bad media and investigate. I think sometimes in our classes, we only want to bring the good stuff in, but that's not good practice for the, all the media they're going to come in contact, contact, right. uh, yep. contact with. Yep. I think there's an, I think there's another takeaway that relates to that, that, uh, that you just talked about, which is, um, educators have this complicated ambivalent relationship about popular culture. When you, cool teachers, bring in popular culture, you bring in your own popular culture, right? But that's not the popular culture that your students experience. So, in fact, teachers are wise to ask students to bring in examples from their own popular culture because mm -hmm. that's really empowering to kids. And you know what? If we can overcome our fear of letting students bring the popular culture that matters to them into the classroom as objects for discussion and interrogation, we can have really high quality, deep discussions. Um, but too often a teacher will bring, when, when a teacher uses popular culture at all, they bring it in from their own repertoire, which sometimes can be just as distant and alienating and irrelevant to students as well, the stuff that's in the history textbooks. So really thinking about popular culture and its place in the classroom is going to require some renegotiation of power relationships. Because when it comes to certain topics in music, in fashion, in technology, in uh, reality TV, students know more about some of those topics than I do. And so I, agree I have to accept that, yeah. them and their expertise as part of the mix. I agree. We have we launched our media unit today and I asked my students to generate as many examples of different types of media that they could, that they use, that they've heard of. And the example came up, I don't even know how we got there about the, I think it's called Catfish. It's a reality TV show. And I didn't yeah. know anything about it and they had MTV. to explain it to me. And I said, so what, what value does that have for you? Like, what do you get out of watching that? And they said, it's just entertaining, right? Like it's, it's reality TV. It's very, uh, it's very, I don't know. They didn't use this word, but like titillating, right? Like it's like the, just exciting for them to watch. And I realized, um, even thinking about it just today, that this idea of reality TV and their level of exposure to reality TV makes kind of the difference between like real and fake news really blurred because what's entertainment and what's information, right? So- yeah. A nice point. This is a nice point. And of course, the topic of, of catfishing is really interesting because it's really about kids' hunger for authenticity and realness, yeah. right? Yeah. So that show can be analyzed at a very deep level. And it really yeah. does relate to this blurring of our, our deep question is what can we believe in? What's real? Yeah. And how do you present yourself online to others? And that's a probably bigger conversation of what's real and what's not. Who are you? Right. And they Publius was really three yeah. people. Is that, <laughs> is that catfishing? Yeah. Yes. I, good historical example there, Michael. Right. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is the part of the podcast where like Marshall McLuhan's ghost comes down and explains that the medium is the message and our reality TV culture got a reality TV election in a lot of senses most recently. But 
Wow, we've got a, we've had so much to think about, and I think you guys have given us a lot of um, great ideas, resources, and uh, you know, to to help students wrestle with, and not just students, but adults, you know, wrestle with all the news sources and media forms that are out there. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Andy, why don't you tell us where our listeners can find you or your work online? Well, I can be found on Twitter at Jansen underscore LHS. Mostly tweets to my students, but occasionally other cool stuff. And yeah, that's pretty much where I live on the internet. And Renee Hobbs, uh, you can also be found at Renee Hobbs. And she was also a guest on episode seven, I believe. And she talked about propaganda. So we will certainly link to that in the show notes. And for those who don't know Renee's work, she really has been a key figure in bringing media literacy to schools as a topic in curriculum. And so she's been a real leader on that front. So you should check out her work and her tweets. Thank you so much for joining us today. We do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces because we feel it is very important to have. Although I'm not sure if we'll be able to verify the credibility of Annie's tweets. I mean, are we sure she's even really tweeting? <laughs> am I who I say I am? Or I am I like catfishing you? We got, we got close to a matrix discussion tonight. Um, <laughs> so we're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. So if you tweet us at Visions of Ed, um, you can share with us creative things you're doing in your classroom. And if you haven't already, you should probably subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, where, where else do can we get SoundCloud? Anywhere else you want to go. We can come to do our podcast in your living room. Michael and I will create a greatest hits tape of our podcast and deliver them to you on your doorstep. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. That is going to be a fun one to edit, Michael. <laughs> <laughs>